Hey, hey, hey. Here I go now. Here I go into this place. The Ace of Spades. <laughs> you know what song that that's uh, uh, Metallica from uh, that m- movie Mission Impossible Two? They did like the soundtrack. Oh, that's there. right. Yeah, <laughs> in the video. <laughs> that video has stuff. Tom Cruise like climbing a man. Uh, like Kurt Hammond's playing on top of like a desert. Dune. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted to show you something, and I kind of wanted to wait for Tanya to be here to talk about it, but um, fuck it, because uh, I just I've been me and Matt have been really diving deep into this like genre of YouTube video. What is it? Um, maybe I oh, should Up Church. Yeah, he's a rapper, right? You know who? Yes, yeah, so you know who Isn't Up Church is. He from Pike County. Is he? I thought Matt told me that one time. Up Church, the Redneck Tour. No, I think Upchurch is like uh, he's like signed to Bubba Sparks's label. Fascinating, is you he know, really? Bubba, Bubba Sparks was. I'll defend this to the death. I think Bubba Sparks is a really, really good rapper, but like he kind of dropped off. He was signed to like uh, Dungeon Family, like Big Boy and Outkasting on them, uh-huh. and he kind of dropped off and just started doing this really bad like country rap stuff with like yeah. Colt Ford and like all these guys that kind of just make like kind of jokey country rap. Well, they call it hip hop. Yeah. Um, it's like it's a weird amalgamation of like Confederate imagery. Yeah. And stuff, but with like hip hop. Yeah. Imagery as well. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of these videos on YouTube. It's really crazy. It's like they um, no, he's from Nashville. It looks like. Um, there is like a, a rap, a country rap guy from Pikeville. I sent it to you. Yeah, you one, sent that I to can't him, remember yeah. what his name is, but dude, they are bad. I will say this though: it as weird as this sounds, it can be tastefully done. Came from the bottom like well water, bitch. Six string, quick picking, what's good, motherfucker. Rebel flag bandana, chromed out Harley Davidson. Damn, that's, that's not. That's that's no good. <laughs> On MTV with the torchlight, smoking up a blunt while I'm playing with some tannerite, bitch. What's tannerite? Is it like a think, is dynamite? Some kind of dynamite? Some kind of explosive? <laughs> yeah, it's like maybe it's like um, surface. Mi- maybe it's like strip mining rap. Ah, oh, tannerite's what we used to <laughs> blow the mountains <laughs> uh, tops off. You hear my name? You know I don't play. What the fuck I'm about? Where I came from? I know a lot of rednecks. Know a lot of real thugs. Know a lot of hillbillies, taut and scraped off guns. Know a lot of motherfuckers. In the heart is where I'm from, with a huge pig farm. No fingers, no thumbs. <laughs> All right, sure. Uh, dude, um, <laughs> ain't no shit, son of a bitch. Come to get some, sipping on these sucking vibe like a milk jug, middle finger kind of guy packing me a big ass 1911 truck so loud, motherfucking loud. God could probably hear that shit way up in heaven. Bars, baby. That's all he's got. (laughs) Bitch, I'm sick like the Zika virus. I'm the king now, son of a bitch. Close the curtains. (laughs) (laughs) If you just like, if you just read this to a dramatic reading of this. It just reads like uh, like a bot wrote this. Right. Look at the cu- cover. Bad motherfucker. Up church. He's sitting on a white. White Harley. A white, white Harley. Fat boy. 
Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. You know, it's. I was reading something about <clears throat> when the whole discussion about, um, you know, taking the Confederate monuments down and all this was sort of popping off. You know the rapper Yellow Wolf? Yeah. He was defending his use of, because he likes to tie the confederate bandana around his mouth like a burglar mask right. when he does his shows right he was defending his use of that as an alabamian <laughs> well and uh yeah <laughs> so this is a weird th- i think they're uh, they're of the heritage not hate band we are at a weird um i think you're right i'm sorry i got sort of sidetracked because i was trying to find that video that i sent you of the guy from pike county um, I just don't remember his name now. It is weird, though. It's like a... It's got 10 million views. This thing has 10 million views. Look at that. It's very popular. Like, this kind of genre is very popular. <laughs> you know... Blowing up your mountains, dump it in your streams. <laughs> <laughs> Bitch, come at me. You see what I mean? Hope you don't get that cancer from that tetrahedra <laughs> methane. Uh, dude. Um, today's Valentine's Day. You got a, as you as you call it, the Super Bowl of the love game. <laughs> You stand by that? <laughs> no, are you disowning that? No, no, I stand by it, but it's this year I've taken it easy. I oh, took yeah. my foot off the gas a little bit. Did Usually you? I, I kind of go out for go all out for Valentine's Day. And <laughs> Why? Have you had nah, a- two years in, you know, just getting complacent. <laughs> I understand, man. When you're like in a relationship, like a long-term relationship, it's like... Valentine's, I feel like, kind of moves down on the... It's kind of like Arbor Day after a certain point. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's Arbor Day for no, relationships. No, well, actually, I take it back. It's more like President's Day. It's like, yeah, it's cool that we get that off, but it doesn't really mean a whole lot. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Not that we get Valentine's Day off, so perhaps that's a bad analogy, but regardless. Should we get Valentine's Day off? Like, um... If we get I, President's Day off, we should get Valentine's Day off. I know you're trying to smash tomorrow, Terrence. You can have the day off. <laughs> Wait, Monday is President's Day, isn't it? I think. This, this coming Monday? Yeah. I don't know, man, but um, what a week, right? If you can have Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, Valentine's Day, and President's and Day. And off Monday, President's Day. It's like, <laughs> yeah, that fuck. That might be the best holiday week of the year. Yeah, hell yeah. Rivaled only by... Christmas Eve, Christmas, and maybe New Year's, but depending upon your perspective, maybe not. Yeah. I think a lot of people really kill themselves on Christmas. You think that's true? or That's just something I've always heard. And I don't know. I saw this... Um... Fuck, what was it? I saw a tweet the other day about... Oh, shit. What were some recent holidays? Super Bowl. <laughs> that's not a... <laughs> It's national holiday. I saw a tweet the other day that was like, um, domestic violence is 
out of control on Super Bowl. Like it was like basically like it provided a phone number for the domestic violence hotline and said this is the highest number. The sociologist noticed a trend that in the Super Bowl a lot of domestic violence happens. Right, but it's widely it's why that that has been widely dispelled. It's actually a huge myth. It's not really? true. It's not true. I wonder how that started. I mean, it's not that far of a reach. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's never a bad idea. Like raise awareness of <laughs> yeah there's no wrong reason <laughs> right to. Yeah. right but i don't know but it seems like maybe christmas is one of those days i don't know though man holidays are hard you know especially if you lose somebody around the holidays and... yeah one of the weirdest phenomenons seeing seeing academics on facebook referencing us it's <laughs> <Just> like <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and tell you right now, it's a very slippery slope. <laughs> we'll try to live our life and do our commentary in a way that won't make you look like a fool, but we make no guarantees about that. <laughs> I was thinking the other day, dude, a funny thing that I keep seeing in, like, lefty nonprofit. <laughs> uh, dude, I've got a whole... A funny thing I keep seeing in, like, lefty nonprofit speak world mm-hmm. which is funny because it's the exact same thing we talked about last time we were interviewing elizabeth is um i think uh like the, the hot thing right now is people saying like mutual aid is just something i'm really into right now mutual aid have you seen that no uh, I, keep, I keep saying it all the time i'm just really into mutual aid right now it's something i'm really into what's the it's like helping people what's the that's just that's that's what it is <laughs> that's the church stuff way to say just i guess giving five bucks to unicef yeah do you have any good Valentine's Day stories? Do you have any good breakup stories? Buddy, how much time do you have? <laughs> About 10 minutes. 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel, I feel like maybe I should get Elizabeth in on this because you've heard all my stories. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there, you could, there could just be no spontaneous response to it. The stupidest breakup I ever had was that one time... Me and you were on the radio, and um, I was talking shit about the Dalai Lama, and I got in trouble for it with the person I was dating. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, fuck this, man. If I can't make fun of the Dalai Lama, it's not worth it. <laughs> man, if you can't make fun of his holiness uh, in front of your partner, your partner's probably wrapped way too tight for living. Just the just the just the concept of like an American like white, relatively affluent, well off, you know, American like chiding me for making fun of the fucking Dalai Lama. It's like people have died for the cause of like Jesus and Muhammad and even like the Dalai Lama. And like if that's your thing, it's fine, whatever. But like. <laughs> Whatever your trip is, baby. <laughs> I just don't. I just don't fuck with the holy one. Well, but just the idea, like, okay, so yeah, like if I was sitting across the table from like a jihadi, a jihad, someone in ISIS, a real jihad, they were like, Akbar, I want to die for this." I'd be like, "That's your thing, man. Hey, right on. Baby. As long as you're taking down the American Empire, I'm all good right. with it. Right on, baby. But the idea of an American." Fucking scolding me for making fun of that fucking piece of shit, the Dalai Lama. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, is the Dalai Lama a piece of shit? I don't know. He is a shill for empire. I don't. I don't He's know anything. I, don't, I say that I don't know anything about the. Dalai I don't Lama. really either. I'm <laughs> ignorant. And that was her. That was her whole point. She was like, "You're just being ignorant." <laughs> like, and I was like, 
yeah, well, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I want to be ignorant with my friends from time to time. But also, but also, it's just like it's just it's comedy. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Fun shit, dude. Nah, uh, the weirdest breakup. You know, I was thinking about. Uh, you know this phenomenon in relationships when you don't want to be in it anymore, but you don't want to actually have an uncomfortable conversation, <laughs> so you try to find something to break up with the person Hell over? Yeah. Oh, yeah. When I was a sophomore in high school, I broke up with a girl for making a joke about Aliyah's death. Grasping at straws. I was desperate. <laughs> it's funny. Like I remember exactly when that happened. You know, like, everybody's got, like, a story about 9-11, like, where were you when those towers fell? Yeah. Well, I do remember that, but I also remember where I was when Aaliyah was, what, died. I remember being in, uh, I was in eighth grade, and I was in, like, second period, like, history or some shit. And I just remember that those two things happened in really close proximity. Like, yeah. Aaliyah died, like, only, like, a month before... Or maybe after. I don't know. It was it was, it was right around. It was the same right around time. the same time. But I just remember, like in my mind, I was like, "Damn, planes, planes are not safe, folks." Not safe. <laughs> <laughs> What's my takeaway? <laughs> what I'm taking away from all this tragedy is don't fly. <laughs> I was looking back through our our uh, through some of our files of old episodes we recorded, and I guess we recorded one episode. I don't think we ever used it. But the the, uh, the the title of the episode was nine eleven, but with trains. <laughs> <laughs> Have they thought of that one yet? <laughs> no. Don't give them any. Well, idea. yeah, okay, let's not. We didn't go with it because we were afraid we were gonna get in trouble or something. Yeah, self censored. God damn it! We've gone soft. We're shields for empire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, well, um, let's get our bearings straight so we can have an actual serious interview with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Cat. How's that sound? Whoop, whoop. I'm your puppet. I know what that song is. Is that what it is? Yeah, I love the song. What's that guy's name? James and Bobby Purify. I'm your puppet. But there's another version of it. Um, Man, is that how... There was... uh, What's interesting about this era of R&B music is they were talking about fucking in such a coded way yeah, that it's came full circle, and now it just sounds pervier than if they were just being explicit, more explicit (laughs) about it. Yeah. You're one hundred percent correct <laughs> about that. <clears throat> I don't know. It was bad. I think it was better back then when you had to be a little more euphemistic about your. A little more clever. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you, somebody that wasn't good at that subtlety was R. Kelly. <laughs> Remember make that song about fucking in the kitchen? Yeah. <laughs> well, he is anything but subtle. I mean, he pees on people. There's nothing subtle <laughs> about no peeing on su- people. <laughs> All right. Let's, Wait, let's try to call. Oh, I don't want to do it. I don't want to. Oh. 
What's up, homie? Hey, what's up? Oh, there you guys are. <laughs> there she is. Um, um, do you have, like, the updated version of Skype? I didn't know, like, the song is, like, techno now. Um, yeah, possibly. Possibly. It's weird. Is it? it just sounds like the do-do-do-do on my end, though. Ours had is, a, it like, is it dropping bass? Yeah, ours had a driving yeah, beat. Ours was a little less Inspector Gadget, a little more, uh... <laughs> Bass neck or something. <laughs> yeah, quite amigos. I have the dubstep version of Skype. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez, jeez, jeez. Well, uh, Dr. Cat, welcome yeah. on the show. Welcome back for an unprecedented third time. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you guys so much. We're. Uh, I'm we're, happy to be here. We're. we're, we're talking to our lawyers about making you a generous offer to <laughs> come on board full time. So I was like try I thought I was like looking for um inter or uh I was looking for <laughs> I was looking for reviews of the book. God damn it, Mike. Um Elizabeth Cat, what's your what you're getting wrong about Appalachia? Um Mike on Amazon writes socialist propaganda, one star. It's nothing but a short anti-capitalist pro-socialist price of propaganda. That's actually the, what it says. It says price. I think you mean peace, Mike. <laughs> it's a piece of propaganda. Do you agree with Mike's assessments? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. Um, I I try. I mean, I see no lies in, the, <laughs> in that <laughs> statement. Sorry, Mike didn't like the book. He gave um, Dinesh D'Souza's book five stars, though. <laughs> People emailed me about that. Which one? Which one? So, well, I, the one about how the Democrats are like uh, the like the, in the Klan. Really, the, r- really the racist <laughs> ones. I love it. I, Zanesh D'Souza is like, he's got an imagination. I'll put it that way. <laughs> um. All right. So our guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Cat. Uh, who we've yeah had on twice before, three times if you consider the Halloween episode. Um, yeah, and we're talking frequent a, collaborator. Frequent collaborator. Um, and we're talking <laughs> talking about the book she just released, "What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia." So uh, let's just dive right into it, shall we? Um, I had a few. Li- I had a list here of a few things that you. Oh, God, there's a list of questions coming out. Yeah, well, it's really a, a list of controversial takes you make in the book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Number one, Gary Stewart is way better than Dwight Yoakam and never got his due. That's crazy. Number two, pe- <laughs> people in East Kentucky listen to rap and drink Crown Royal, not old-time music and bourbon. Who'd have thunk it? Number three, there's no actual... It doesn't actually matter how you pronounce Appalachia. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay, I'm done. <laughs> well, we're gonna give you. you think about, yeah. What did you guys think about my claim that um, Kentucky does not, in fact, have the lowest cigarette prices allowed by law? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's close, but you're, you're right. You're fucking up our tourism prospects. <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. All right. So, um, let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, the book opens up with, uh, the story of the Sago mine disaster in 2006. Um, 
Could, mm-hmm. could you like maybe tell us a little bit about what that was and like any sort of lessons we can draw from the media's um, response to it? <clears throat> oh yeah. So um, in 2006, there was an explosion at the Sago mine, which is in West Virginia. Um, 13 people were killed. I believe 13 people. Um, one of them survived. So fact check me on that. Um, and yeah, so the the thing about the Sago mine is not only was it um, kind of this disaster of mine safety, but for um, a couple days, um, people believed that most of the miners were alive, that they were trapped and that um, rescue crews could get to them. And their families believed that. So they set up um, national and international news media set up this sort of like kind of grim, um, almost like death watch with um, families who were kind of right across the street from where the mine was. And in fact, um, the families got incorrect news that most of the miners had survived and that they were sending people down there to rescue them. And of course, um, that information was incorrect. So we had this like horrific plot twist that happened where um, breaking news, you know, on every major network was like, all these men are alive, hooray, their faith has, um, you know, resulted in this tremendous outcome, unexpected outcome, and of course they were all um, all dead. So when news media covered the, this event, they really wanted to focus on sort of faith and resilience and hardship. And you know, in my opinion, what they should have been doing is looking at the you know the International Mine Group's horrendous record of mine safety violations and why um, those hadn't been given the weight that they should and the things that were going on behind the scenes um, that are pretty common in the mining industry, um, how those conspired to make the explosion um, a full-blown disaster. But of course, that's not the story they wanted to tell. They wanted to tell about, you know, hard scrabble people hoping in vain for a miracle. Right. Yeah, like what you write, uh, you said, um, their anger was framed as a melodramatic response triggered by grief, not as a series of reactions compelled by the often abusive tension between mine operators and the communities that served as their workforce. Um, and it's interesting, like, because I think you sort of go on to explain that, like, a lot of, like, reporting in the sort of, like, Trump country format does that same sort of media sleight of hand, where... Um, the actual, like, I don't know, as you get into it, you say um, the people are are responding, you know, through grief and, and all these other things, like like you say, me- making a sort of, like, melodramatic scene where, like, the company largely escapes a lot of the accountability for what's happening. Um, like, what, why, <clears throat> so, like, why is this story important to the larger story you're telling? Um, so, I mean, like what you just said, Terrence, there's like these, um, these frameworks appear in the way that people have been reporting on politics in Appalachia, um, recently, but also historically, um, people in Appalachia tend to be framed as people who are, um, overly emotional, that they're kind of, um, the rational part of them has been clouded by um, negative emotions like despair and hopelessness and that they're trapped in sort of um, situations where they can only respond in the worst possible way, which is deeply emotional, people voting against their own interest, things like that. Um, Poor people in general are rarely given any sort of rationality um, 
you know, you see this in the way that people talk about also like for-profit education too, that people are always deluded or, um, you know, not making wise decisions about their circumstances. Now, I think like the Trump phenomenon is way different, but it was easy for the press to mimic this framework based on the way that people have written about um, Appalachia and poor people in general in the past. Yeah. Um, hold on just one second, Elizabeth, because I want to connect to a little bit stronger internet connection because we lost you yeah. for a second okay <laughs> all right <laughs> sorry about that okay can you hear us i love that yeah you <laughs> like that <laughs> um can you say what you were just saying at the end there about um essentially like how this is a common um framing in a lot of these stories how Poor people are not uh, seen as rational, and you were talking about how you see that in for-profit schools as well. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Did we get, fr- did we get I frozen? I frozen again. Mother fucker. We have a poor connection. <laughs> That'll be the last time that happens, I swear. We're making a strong case for expansion of rural broadband. <laughs> Can't even do our goddamn comedy podcast because it's bullshit. Okay, all right, all right. Um, could you, uh, in so many words, so, you don't have to say everything you just said because I, I got most of it, but I just kind of wanted okay. to go back and retread a little bit about what you, what you were talking about, how the media frames like poor people as non-rational agents and all these. So um, I think historically the way that people have written about Appalachia and poor people in general, um, they're always sort of responding to um, emotions. They're not doing things that are rational. They're making the worst possible choices, and they're making these choices because they are deluded or that they possess sort of a negative understanding, a deficient understanding of the way that the world works. Um, and so I think I said that um, I don't, you know, that I kind of consider the Trump phenomenon to be a different um, kettle of fish, and I don't see, you know, rational ways to justify a vote for Donald Trump. But the narrative that was in place and has been in place about Appalachia and poor people made it easy for the media to adopt that framework and to deploy it in kind of the the first wave of these Trump country pieces that came out about Appalachia in the 2016 election. Yeah. Um, and sort of just like as an aside to our listeners, um, you know, and you mentioned this in the in your book, but um, Wilbur Ross, who owned the Sago mine during the explosion, went on to become Trump's commerce secretary, I think, secretary mm-hmm. of commerce. And then um, uh, ICG, because it was an it was an ICG mine, right? It was. <laughs> well, the former ICG uh, CEO of ICG is actually the current. Um, uh, he's the head of the Energy and Environment Cabinet here in Kentucky, so it's like. You have this situation where um, Snavely, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was he was he, he ran ICG when they got caught defrauding um, Kentucky with all these like clean water reports. Right. They were basically just copying and pasting clean water reports from month to month and saying that they didn't have any pollutions at their mines. Um, so it's like these individuals just keep, you know, they fell upwards. They just keep uh, getting yeah. put back into positions of power. Okay, so like going on from there, you you go on to talk a little bit about McDowell County, and mm-hmm. we um, 
and you know, which is in the it's the southernmost county in West Virginia. It's sort of there was a high concentration of like Trump country pieces from McDowell County. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about like the sort of concerted effort of um, like capital interests and the two political parties at like basically shutting out progressive politics. And um, I wanted to use the the anecdote of was it Charlotte Pritt? Yeah, Charlotte. Yeah, um, you write. You know, I thought this is just the best way to put it. You said political candidates committed to labor and environmental issues don't often fare well in West Virginia, not because they're unpopular with the electorate, but because pro-business moderates from both parties invest in their failure. Um, and you use Charlotte as the best example of that. Could you tell us a little bit about her and why that fits that mold? Yeah, so about a, a decade ago, Charlotte Pritz um, challenged Joe Manchin um, who is a current senator in West Virginia, and she won her primary, so she defeated Joe Manchin in the primary. And um, instead of, you know, the Democratic Party supporting her as <laughs> sort of the rightful candidate, um, prominent establishment Democrats like Manchin formed a coalition to support the Republican challenger, and Pritt lost the election. So they really saw her pro-environment, pro-labor platform as a threat and seriously invested in her failure. And I think that's a pretty common story in West Virginia and Appalachia at large. Um, it's not that candidates like Pritt are naturally unpopular with the electorate. It's that they are either unsupported through neglect by the establishment or the establishment, you know, actually invests in, um, in their loss, as in the case of exactly what happened with, with Charlotte Pritt. Yeah, and it goes and it goes back to um, you know what we said last week. We you know had Nick Offerman on, and we were talking mm -hmm. about um, just sort of the degree of autonomy that you have over your own circumstances here. And it really just is a great example of how most people really don't have much autonomy over um, their circumstances. And you know when we, when you talk about like the sort of phenomenon of Trump country or a lot of people voting for Trump, you know. A lot of the politics around here are just straight up rigged, you know, and yeah, that's exactly. a that's a really great example of that. I, I I want a uh, city council seat on the flip of a sack of Julia Dollar just to <laughs> illustrate that point. <laughs> yeah, did you guys um, hear about what happened to Lisa Lucas? Lisa Lucas in the um, like the West Virginia House of I think uh, the West Virginia House like last week where she was sort of shoved off the speaker's podium for listing um, campaign contributions from oil and gas companies. Right. What's Lisa run? Is she in Roan County? Was she running for, like, I forget what she, she is. She is running for office. Yeah. She's running for office. That, yeah. yeah. The I, think it's, I, mean, it's, I think it's a House of Delegates that she's running for. Um, okay. Forgive me if I'm wrong, but I think that's, I think that's what she's running for. Um, but she was there as a speaker um, and a landowner who has mineral interests. And so she was speaking against um, like the co-tenancy um, right. like plotting that's going on um, among politicians. And so um, that got a lot of press. And in the follow-up to that, I mean, you could just like sense the anger of these, of, you know, rank-and-file West Virginians that were interviewed by outlets like, you know, Rolling Stone and Politico and, and things like that. And, and they're, they're tired of, you know, getting candidates like Joe Manchin and being told, well, this is the best Democrat you can get. Yeah. Like, you should just be happy to have a Democrat at all. If you want to be progressive, this is what we have to offer. Either take it or don't vote. Right. And most people don't vote. Right. Right. 
Right. Yeah, I think it, it ended up working out for Lisa, though, right? Didn't she raise like $45,000, which is <laughs> like Dang, in the aftermath of <laughs> so, Yeah. Yeah. And so right now, um, actually, Joe Manchin, is he running again? Is he? Yeah. So his one of his challengers, though, is a, a sort of progressive burning um, type Democrat, Paula Jean Swearingen. Mm-hmm. And um, it'd be really interesting to see what comes out uh, comes out of that. She's I thought she's I think she's run a pretty good campaign. And, you know, she's just very consistent and just has stayed on her message for a really long time. Yeah, and it's funny, I mean, the height of irony is that um, Manchin, at the moment, is going around to um, Democrats at all levels, state and national, and, like, has this pledge that um, nobody will, um, none of the, the elected Democrats will speak out against a sitting, um, a sitting representative. So he's basically asked, asking them to do what, not to do what he did. Right. In the case of Charlotte Pritt, which is go against um, whoever um, happens to be the winner of the primary. Right, right. Yeah, it's pretty bleak because it really just shows you that not only are the reactionaries in the right wing our enemies, but, you know, these Joe Manchin type Democrats are also absolutely our enemies. They don't they want to make sure that the people are shut out of any kind of um, policy discussions or anything that has anything to do with bettering their lives. Oh, yeah, and that's not even to talk, and not even to mention, like, Jim Justice, who right. switched parties, who right. was allowed to, you know, and was allowed to move forward as a Democratic candidate, even though people knew that he was, like, highly unstable politically. Um, so, yeah, people have a right to be angry at that, and I think they have a right not to trust the Democratic establishment, because this is the kind of thing that's leaking out and is affecting their lives in a very real way. Right, right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, so I, one of the things I liked about your book um is that it spends a lot of time um, talking about history. I mean, and not just, like, the literal facts of history, but, you know, what we would call in the Academy, like, historiography. Like, how, yeah. like you know, how history is treated and who gets to write it and who, what you know, mm-hmm. what, to what ends it's deployed. Um, and I thought, like, one of the best examples of that was um, this guy, Bruce Crawford, um, in West Virginia, who in the 1930s was essentially, uh, I guess he was commissioned by the Roosevelt administration to be the sort of point person who was assembling um, West Virginia's history at that time. Um, for yeah, one of their correct. new, I, fa- I can't remember what it was, for one of their New Deal programs, it was like the farm, something. It was the Federal Writers Project. Right, okay. Um, and he was commissioned to write the um, West Virginia State Guide. So every state was going to have one of these um, publications, and he happened to be the person that was nominated to compile um, West Virginia's history. Right. And he was uh, pretty much dyed-in-the-wool leftist, right? He was trying to um, write a history that was radical um, and was basically, uh, you know, at every turn was essentially, you know, the powers that be were trying to shut him up. <laughs> yeah, um, Bruce Crawford had a hell of a time. I mean, he was... He was a World War I veteran, um, and when he left service, he kind of cut his teeth um, publishing left-wing newspapers in southwest Virginia, where my people are from. Um, and when he wasn't publishing newspapers, he was going like across the border into Kentucky to help striking miners there. And so he brought, I mean, he obviously brought that spirit to him when he wanted to compile West Virginia history and include things like Blair Mountain, the Hawksmouth Tunnel disaster, Mother Jones, Paint Creek, Cabin Creek. 
um, all those important labor um, labor stories and stories of labor organizing and the establishment, which again was democratic, um, like through a ship fit because they really galled them that you know we were going to have like talk about heroes of the you know heroes of war and all that kind of stuff right up there with people who had led you know uh, labor strife in Blair Mountain right. and that was unconscionable to them because they wanted um, the state history to be basically um, public relations for the coal industry and talk about how um, the coal industry had really rescued West Virginia from degeneracy and turned it into sort of a, a paradise um, for for industry. Right. You wouldn't let that stand. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a that's actually a great point to sort of pivot to like the second section of the book, which is essentially about Hillbilly Elegy and J.D. Vance. Um, but, you know, it's not just about J.D. Vance. It's, you know, you talk about a lot of other stuff in there as well, like Harry Cottle. Um, so, you know, we talk about history and to what ends it's deployed and who gets to sort of write it. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about like the, you know, the efforts early on um, to sort of portray Appalachia as like a distinct ethnic identity um, and, you know, like how that has to do with the what J.D. Vance and other writers like him are, are doing. Yeah, so the easiest thing is, I, when I think of the long arc of Appalachian history, I think it is the story of people trying to sever poor people from the richness of the land around them. And that tracks through forced indigenous migration to what's going on with co-tenancy in West Virginia today. Um, so I only, you know, the, the period that I'm discussing is like right after the Civil War. So that's where I pick up um, because this is a time when the coal industry is um, really, you know, developing its kind of enormous power in the region. But people have deployed myths and stereotypes. Um, lots of them have to do with defective culture and genes basically to get the land that people are living on. Um, and this is, you know, you can make arguments that people are degenerate because they are living on submarginal land and we need to move them somewhere else for, you know, their own benefit um, when it's really they want to develop the land into something. Um, you, you know, the eugenics movement has a huge presence in Appalachia in times past. So it's a, you know, a laboratory of experimentation um, for them as well. Um, and are kind of deploying myths and stereotypes, especially about shared, um, you know, genes to make that happen. Um, it's really kind of a very pronounced thread that runs through Appalachian history. And I don't think you have to be a historian or somebody from Appalachia to recognize that. And one of the things that was, I mean, and you guys have talked about this a lot, too, that's been so galling about hillbilly elegy is um, like this undercurrent of racial determinism in the book that goes completely, had been completely unnoticed by most people um, and most left-leaning people or liberal people, um, you know, writing in praise of it. Because it's, it's very pronounced if you know anything about just the history of the United States. Right. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. I think it's like, I can't remember how you word it, but essentially what you're saying is that, like, um, what... Well, I'm not going to be able to thread that, you know, so I'm going to back <laughs> off of that. <laughs> Our brain's not in that place right now. Um, but, yeah, so, like, you talk about, like, the 1920s and the 1930s as the sort of, like, you said, you write that it was, like, a critical decade in the construction of the Mountain White. Um, and I think that, like, maybe the best example of that is, like, I wanted to talk about, like, where the media plays into that construction, 
and specifically it sort of hints at what you just said a lot of the times it had to do with like literally portraying these people as uh degenerate backwards etc you know without agency and all these other things so that their literal resources could be taken away from them i think the best example was the people who lived near the shenandoah valley um I can't remember. Was it Arthur Rothstein? It was somebody who worked. Yeah, Arthur Rothstein. He was a um, New Deal photographer. Right. So, like a lot of the images that pe- that were being taken out of Appalachia around that time, of you know Appalachians living in squalid conditions um, and all this, they were pretty much done in communities where there were material interests at work they, there was larger like corporate interests trying to get the resources of those communities um yeah ex- exactly yeah i mean so could you talk a little bit about that like about like the sort of perpetuation of these images the perpetuation of that narrative and maybe how it sort of got taken up by eugenicists <laughs> a few decades later yeah i mean it wasn't even a few decades it was like you know, kind of like months later. Um, so what happens in the, the Shenandoah Valley is, is, you know, the strongest example. But, like, you know, my my relatives were the subject of these photographs, too, um, in Tennessee, because it was so widespread. But the Shenandoah Valley is a good example because um, the, the resources were just, um, you know, unadulterated land. They wanted to build a national park um, in the Shenandoah Valley, and they were successful at doing that. Um, and because it was a site of natural beauty, it had already been significantly developed before um, this process went into place. So there were, like, gas stations and restaurants and hotels already in the area. Um, but when they decided to expand the park, there were about 500 families living in the area, um, and the government, and in conjunction with, like, local business people and local uh, politicians, wanted to evict them as quickly as possible. So what they did is they used, um, they brought in some sociologists, from, like, the University of Chicago to write the study about the, you know, sort of, like, defective hillbillies that were living in this area. Um, and then the next wave is sort of, F, you know, government photographers who are doing social documentation of the region, and they use the studies that were produced by sociologists to kind of frame their work, because they're not really, like, expert photographers at the time. If they can read a book that says, like, you know, um, I came across a kid in a bush, you know, chewing a plug of tobacco. They're going to say, they're going to find a kid and say, like, oh, here's some tobacco. Can you go hide in that bush for me? Right. Um, so they're doing, <laughs> you know, so they're doing, like, things like that um, to manipulate these photographs. And all of this is, like, making the government and local politicians and local business people incredibly happy because then what they do is they go to sort of these burgeoning eugenics institutions that are, like, proliferating through uh, Virginia, such as, like, Western State Hospital and, um, the Lynchburg colony and saying like, you need to send professionals up to this area and take these people away and sterilize them. Otherwise they're just going to breed down to idiocy here in the mountains. And so that's the cycle that um, occurs when we start talking about, you know, deficient genes in Appalachia. And the point that I make in the book is that when you start talking about like deficient culture, you're never far behind these arguments about, genetic deficiency, um, especially when you're talking about shared heritage, like, you know, it's been Anglo-Saxon at some point in time, it's been Scotch-Irish, it kind of like, you know, ebbs and flows, but these conversations are never happening, like, separated from each other, they're all part of the same conversation, and the people having these conversations know this, but they don't want us to know that, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, you know, you refer to it. I think you quote a. Um, I think her name is Wilma Dunaway, and she, you know, she referred to it as this sort of like ethnic homogeneity thesis. Um, and I also thought it was interesting that there was this like Celtic thesis, and like one of the proponents of that was this guy named Grady McWhiney. <laughs> yeah, the, the white supremacist. Right. It's like there's the that's a perfect name for like a white supremacist. Yeah, a white supremacist. Eugenicist. I think it's interesting how that 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 line of thinking can exist with everybody thinking that Pocahontas is their great 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 grandmother. <laughs> yeah, and it's like <laughs> idea of white degeneracy. Well, I think it has to do with the sort of like history of like colonization of. Appalachia and how we don't talk about it hardly at all. Nah. I mean it's this like yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting that like we when we talk about Appalachia, me and Tom were talking about this before we called you actually. We were talking about like the history of Appalachia and we talk about it, usually we're only referencing like the war on poverty up until now. A very short time, mm-hmm. like the last fifty years or so. Like Ron Eller onward. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just like, and when we talk about like the history of it, like there is kind of like a big blank space from like frontier when it was the actual frontier up until like the mine wars of the early 20th century. Um, you know, a lot of people do talk about it, but I'm just meaning like in the sort of like larger narrative uh, that the media plugs into and that, you know, even us as activists that we plug into, it's very, very rarely are we sort of referencing a history that goes back farther than 100 years or so. <clears throat> Anyway, it's just sort of a observation. <laughs> um, but there's another thing I wanted to talk about too, though, Elizabeth, which is that, like, so, you know, you have these um, photos and images that are coming out of people living in these sort of, like, desperate conditions and stuff. I, I wanted to ask what your thoughts were. Like, what do you have to say to some, like, photographers and writers? I, I'm not going to name any names or I'm going to get, like, 80,000 emails tomorrow. Who who say that it's who say that it's necessary to document poverty, you know, it's necessary to, to not sugarcoat it or sweep it under the rug or neglect it or anything. I'm like, what do you have to say to that? Because I know for on on for our part, we're 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 not saying that it's bad to shoot people living in you know desperate conditions conditions or anything like that. It has more to do with the way that it's done and if they're being manipulated or not into it. I mean, I'm not going to speak for you, but I just wanted wanted to know what you had to say about that. Yeah, I think, you know, in terms of, I think this exists within all, you know, all kind of genres of photography, but I think in particular with Appalachian photography, there's, you know, um, an intentional blurring between social documentary photography and fine art photography, which is more like, you know, um, photographs that have been produced for explicit consumption and sort of viewing detached from social purpose that just exist as um, more like um, a reflection of the artist's skill and talent. And so people blur that line in Appalachia um, a lot. And I'll name names, and people can email me, but, you know, people like Shelby Lee Adams, for example, um, kind of when he wants to be a social documentary photographer, um, this is when, you know, he's kind of selling his portraits of people who are trapped in poverty is, you know, things that are necessary to catalyze social change. But when he wants to exhibit pictures of poor people in, you know, um, very exclusive environments, then he's a fine art photographer. And it's very, very hard, I think, to be to be both. And, of course, like, we know, um, like, some of the arrangements that go on behind the scenes 
when um, photographers, particularly photographers outside the region or who have left the region and then come back, um, kind of make with their subjects. Like they're saying, and this has always been true of Appalachia, um, you know, pose for a photograph and I'll give you some food. Mm-hmm. I'll give you money. Um, do this and do that. And those are not the stories that get told when um, we're exhibiting these photographs and looking at these photographs and consuming them. There's a lot of, I, you know, I personally think an ethical arrangement that take place behind the scenes to capture um, what's going on. And I think, like, the best example that I can give about how, like, divergent these representations are, if you search for, you know, Appalachian photography on Google, you get a lot of these images that we're talking about, these negative ones, just poor people, trailers, black and white, that kind of thing. But if you search Appalachian photography on Instagram, you get, like, something completely different. You get color, you get landscapes, you get people. And some of these images are people um, experiencing poverty and, or they speak to the experience of poverty. But th- because they're self-created, because there's more agency involved um, in the, you know, the, the subjects are often the photographers as well, um, you get, you know, a vastly different output and a vastly different archive. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it, better than I could have put it. Um, so, you know, you know, as we, you know, uh, talk about like sort of more modern representations of like what's going on in here, wh- you know, what's going on in the region, what's going on politically and all this other stuff. Um, I wanted to get to this sort of like third section of the book where you, you know, you go sort of down the line of, of radicals in this region who have resisted. You know, when we had R.L. Stevens on a few um, months ago, we were talking about, like, how the media often talked about Trayvon Martin. Like, he was this, mm-hmm. um, you know, just passive little kid who um, just was the victim of a racist. And, you know, R.L. was talking about how important it is to reclaim the narrative that actually Trayvon was not passive. and He was actively resisting. Um, and just how crucial it is to... Um, to make that point. And I think that you're trying to basically make a similar point in the third portion of the book where you're talking about people at the Highlander, where you're talking about Eula Hall, and we're talking about, um, you know, mountaintop removal activists. Um, could you talk a little bit about why you focused on some of these individuals in in this part of the book? Oh, you mean like the, the Electric County Governance Project, too? <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to uh, mention that. <laughs> People are going to yeah. accuse me of having a bias. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, this is... So, I'm a historian, but it's so hard to know, like, how much history that people know and carry with them. Because um, there's textbook history, there's personal history, there's community history, and people have an awareness Um in different ways of, you know, the past. And I don't want to, like, be like, this is your history, because people know this, and I don't want to be condescending, but I want to also locate these people that I talked about that you just mentioned in, um, like, a struggle that we have shared and have often shared in the region, which is um, resisting capitalism um, and how that is, like, the, you know, the hub in the middle of the spoke that just sort of, like, connects a lot of what we do um, and a lot of what we've done and a lot of what we will probably do um, in the future. So it's important to me t- for people who might read this book who don't know much about Appalachia to understand that there is a strong tradition of resistance and subversion um, and even sedition and insurrection 
in Appalachia because the main, the, you know, the, the dominant n- narrative of Appalachia is that we're all complacent, that we just, you know, have let ourselves be degraded, that we vote against our own interests, that we don't exercise, you know, the right amount of agency. But my, you know, I use the example of Kevin Baker, who's like, you know, getting kind of like his jimmies rustled over people who, you know, carried guns and went to war in Blair Mountain, but, um, you know, knows nothing about anti-poverty workers building like community libraries in eastern Kentucky right. um, during the war on poverty. And those, you know, aren't radically different to me because people are using the, like, the tools that are available to them um, and they're going by the, the mantra of any means, you know, necessary. Right. And so I think people need to understand that those are connected, that those come out of the same traditions and it's traditions that, you know, there's lots of examples in the past, also in the present as well. Yeah, Elizabeth, you to to tack on to that, you wrote that how about how rebellious activists didn't transplant from elsewhere that they originated here. And when you were writing about that, I was thinking about well, here in Letcher County, Gay Nell and Joe Begley, you know, who were, Joe was blowing up inloaders on strip sites, and <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say, maybe I shouldn't incriminate him <laughs> posthumously. At uh, Hogan Court with like Bobby Seale and the Black Panthers and some of this other stuff. Who? In your research, who are some of the other radicals from the region that we as leftists should be acquainted with? Or well, I think all of them are, are kind of unsung, but you know that are a little bit more unsung than even the Eula Halls and so forth. Yeah, I think um, so. I talked about them a little bit in the book, but they they definitely deserve a stronger biography. Um, and there 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 you know there are biographies that just need to be to be read. But um, the Appalachian Group to Save the Land and People. Mm-hmm. which is an activist group that came out of this, like, war on poverty um, moment. And so the conventional narrative of that is that, um, and you know, but for the listeners at home, um, mm-hmm. Appalachia was kind of inundated by, like, young white people in the 1960s who um, were either, like, Appalachian volunteers or VISTAs, basically poverty warriors, um, young people that wanted to get involved in social causes, and kind of um, a lot of them came to the mountains during the war on poverty to do anti-poverty work. Uh, And so the conventional narrative is that young people came into the mountains and, like, radicalized all these mountain people, and everything kind of went to shit after that because, you know, it caused caused rifts in the community. But the Vistas will will say, like, oh, no, no, Um, these people who are, like, operating, like, like, gun clubs, and stuff like that, yeah. and are, like, carrying guns everywhere to shoot at, like, strip miners and things like that, and are going to jail for sedition and kind of blowing things up and, and whatnot. They're the people that radicalized us because we experienced what they have been experiencing. And so this is how radical action happened. It wasn't sort of like young people came and, you know, made everybody, like, really feisty and fired up and gave them politics. Um, it was very much, you know, from from the bottom bottom up that this happened, and the Appalachian Group to Save the Land and People is like a tremendous example of that, and especially the way that um, sort of Appalachian elders at the time, like all, you know, most people, a lot of people are familiar with Ollie Combs and her protest against the um, coal companies, mm-hmm. but um, their children were away. They'd been, you know, either depopulating the region or they were, you know, got sent to Vietnam. And so this was like their last ditch effort to to save their land from strip mining. And these people who are, you know, 60, 70 years old were doing um, sort of armed resistance against coal companies. And that's, you know, a tremendous um, story that's in that history. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely doesn't get talked about um, 
a lot. But yeah, there was absolutely harmed resistance. Uh, you would have, like you said, the Mountain Gun Club or the Mountaintop Gun Club. I can't remember which one it is, but yeah, I think it's Mountaintop Gun Club. They. Which was almost the name of this podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to yeah. call it the Mountaintop Gun Club at one point. Um, they would t- they would take weapons up on the strip mines and basically shoot at strip miners by sort of pretending to be doing target practice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, it's an incredible uh, anecdote and just goes to show you um, how deeply interwoven. The land was with people's lives and with the political economy in general. Um, but anyways, so you know what? What else do I want to get into as we as we move along? There was one more other thing. Um. Tom, what do you got? Oh, another thing I wanted to talk about, <laughs> just as a as a sort of aside, um, was Eula Hall. Uh, <laughs> there's this very great anecdote of uh, Eula Hall, you know, at her Mud Creek Clinic. <laughs> like, there were Maoist doctors who would like come to Appalachia in the 70s, and there used to be a huge portrait of Mao actually at the Mud Creek <laughs> Clinic. <laughs> really? Yeah, there. Yeah, there. She had a huge portrait. Like they put it up, but she didn't do anything. She thought it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I guess like the last thing I wanted to talk about um is you know sort of the la- one of the last things that you s- touch on, which is the framework of the internal colony, like of mm-hmm. of how. You know, this idea was sort of introduced in the 60s and 70s, and it, and it was very useful for a lot of people. Um, but you talk a little bit about, like, its limitations as well. Could you talk a little bit about where this idea came from, what it is, and the limitations that you are referencing? Yeah, so I guess the mother of the internal colony model is um, Helen Lewis, and she's a tremendous thinker and activist who um, adopted a position after the war on poverty failed that really um, the only people who are in a position to address these problems are the people who live with them. And so Appalachians set to the task of um, trying to create a model and a theory of how power works in their world um, that would um, not only, like, help them in these piecemeal ways, like building roads and schools, but also kind of create a, a, new, a momentum for a new activism. And it was modeled pretty closely, I think, on um, the new left in the 1970s, and they were very um, anti-colonial at the time. So it, it, it you know, it meshed with um, the politics of the time, too. Um, and it sort of posits that Appalachia has been an internal resource colony for the United States and that a lot of oppression that flows in the region um, is because Appalachia has served this purpose and that we've been colonized. Um, and so it's tremendously helpful, I think, for understanding where people in the 1970s were in their thinking. Um, and it also helps us to understand, uh, like, how people thought about Appalachia outside the region, because, you know, I'll talk about some criticisms of the internal colony model, but to be fair, you know, uh, coal companies were talking about Appalachia as a colony, and politicians were talking about Appalachia as a colony. And when journalists came to the region, they were saying, like, wow, you know, if the United States is going to help countries in Africa liberate themselves, we should help Appalachia, too. So there was this, like, narrative that Appalachia was indeed a colony um, at the time, and they were responding to that as well. 
But the limitations are that it doesn't, you know, speak to um, sort of forced migration of indigenous people and the way that that has shaped um, the way we think about land ownership and land rights. It doesn't... Um, it doesn't acknowledge that people within Appalachia and especially white people in Appalachia can be oppressors as well. And so, of course, like the big example is the way that like our local elite have always facilitated um, coal industry malice in their region. But there's much more, you know, we could talk about in terms of racism, homophobia, bigotry, religious fundamental, uh, religious fundamentalism. Um, there's an idea that you know, all of the woes of the region are imported by outside actors and, and that um, it's insignificant, the amount of oppression that originates within Appalachia. So, uh, you know, I think very much we need to talk about that, too, and that's a, a, a big limit to that. There's also the idea that um, people who are in, you know, countries that have been colonized don't really use this model anymore to think about themselves. Um, and this is like, I would just recommend that people read, you know, this is like a journal of Appalachian Studies special uh, edition about this that talks a lot about how, you know, we can adopt um, different frameworks from people who have experienced a longer history of colonialism um, to kind of alter the thinking. But it was, you know, it's, a, it's an important theory to understand the legacy of and what it did at the time and how we've moved on um, from using that as a framework for understanding power in Appalachia. Yeah. Um... Well, there's. I just want to ask one more question, and then we'll let you yeah. go. Just final question. Um, like, how do we make the information that you're presenting in this book um, something like we can take into the streets and like act on? Like, what it, what is its application to you? Yeah, that's a great question. It's something that I think about um, a lot. So, you know, my purpose for writing this book was just like a pure act of dissent in solidarity. Um, I do not, you know, of course, like you've read the book and we've had lots of conversations. I really hate J.D. Vance, but I also hate this sort of legacy that he's part of where one person in the region gets to be, you know, our generation's spokesperson and all knowledge and understanding of the region flows through those opinions and those perspectives. Um, it was important to me to, like, object to that and, and create, you know, um, like an artifact of dissent, I guess, is how I think about this book, that, you know, at this moment in time, I'm tired of that happening, and I'm going to marshal all the resources at my disposal to interrupt that power. Um, and so when I think about applications, I, I still think in terms of interrupting power and being disruptive to power. Um, I would like, you know, I'd like to see, like, I'm a historian, so what I do, and, you know, the other side of my personal life is I do community history, and so I go to people who have underrepresented history, um, and we try to give them tools and resources, often, you know, working um, as on a volunteer basis to tell stories that are underrepresented in the area. Um, and mostly the work that we do is um, either related to labor or, or African-American history. So we're trying to give people tools um, to, to alter power and alter the, the narrative um, and I would like to do much more work in terms of that and see many more people doing that work in terms of that um, to change the narrative and, and to tell different stories of, about the region and to kind of in interrupt that power as well. Um, I also, you know, in, on the other side of my personal life, I'm a, an organizer for the Democratic Socialists of America. And so actually trying, you know, I tried to give people, and this is not so much covered in the book, but different ways of understanding, like, the possibilities of the future. I think one of the failures when we talk about Appalachian, this is sort of anything from, like, the Democratic Party to the ARC, 
uh, like, let's make things better for the next generation. And so I think I kind of think, like, fuck that. Um, I would like to make things better for people now, like, for myself and for my friends. Um, And so I want to give people, like, an understanding of a different way that politics can work for us in terms of marshalling resources for uh, the public, the greater good. Yeah. Well, um, that's a great answer. Um, so, all right. Well, Elizabeth, um, thank you so much. Um, the book is called What You Are Getting Wrong About Appalachia. It's a very short book. You can read it in a weekend, but it is pa- it packs a punch. It's good. Thank you, guys. Um, thanks for spending the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks again, Kat. And uh, if you and Josh ever need a third for King of the Hill trivia. <laughs> Tom's uh, your so man. I'm going to do that Holla because um, Josh wanted me to tell you that he's beating you in fantasy base, uh, basketball. Uh, my team, my <laughs> team, my team's all <laughs> to the hell. Dale, I made a couple of uh, GMing missteps. <laughs> he says the Harlan Globetrotters are going to go all the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tim, I'll be back on that ass next year. <laughs> Well, um, well, thanks for joining us again, Elizabeth, and happy Valentine's Day. It's Valentine's. Yeah, happy Valentine's Day to you guys too. I hope it's tremendous, and um, I'll probably see you in person next person soon. Oh yeah. hell yeah, 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 sounds good. Yeah, stop by. Okay. We would love to hang out. Yep, All right. we'll do. You guys take care. You too. Yeah.